Part 1. Blueprints. Part 1. Blueprints. Chapter 1. A covenant, not a contract. Who owns the family? The state? The church? The parents? All of these answers are wrong. God owns the family. Any time you try to argue that someone or some, quote, institution, unquote, owns the family, you will end up viewing the family as just a human creation, a mere contract. If that's all it is, then there's no reason for the state not to violate it, just as it violates all sorts of private contracts. What principle is to prevent the state from taking a family's children, re-educating them, or breaking it up whenever it seems socially or politically expedient. Ironically, the state used to be the biggest defender of the family and parental rights over children because the US Supreme Court ruled that marriage is more than a contract. Almost 100 years ago, there was an important case, Maynard v. Hill, 1888, that made this point. The United States Supreme Court said, quote, Whilst marriage is often termed by text writers and in decisions of courts a civil contract, it is something more than a mere contract. The consent of the parties is of course essential to its existence, but when the contract to marry is executed by the marriage, a relation between parties is created which they cannot change. Other contracts may be modified, restricted or enlarged, or entirely released upon the consent of the parties. Not so with marriage. The relation once formed, the law steps in and holds the parties to various obligations and liabilities. It is an institution, the maintenance of which, in its purity, the public is deeply interested. For it is the foundation of the family and of society, without which there would be neither civilization nor progress. End quote. I know it's hard to believe that the Supreme Court once said such a thing, but it's true. There is real legal precedent that marriage is not just a contract. Well, if it's not a contract, then what is it? The language of the Supreme Court is that it is an institution. So what? Since marriage is an, quote, institution, unquote, it is a sacred covenant. A sacred covenant. A few years ago, I was with some friends. After dinner, I happened to notice a faded out old document on the table. I couldn't make out the words, but in big bold letters at the top of the document, it said, quote, marriage covenant between dot, 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 end quote. I couldn't believe my eyes. I asked my friend what this was. He told me it was a marriage covenant filed at the local courthouse between his great-great-great-grandparents. An immediate question popped into my head. When did people stop drawing up marriage covenants? The answer to that question turned out to be a fascinating study, one that I can't go into at this point, but... It is quite clear that marriages in this country, 100, 200 and even 300 years ago, 
were viewed as sacred covenants. Below you'll find a covenant dating from 1664 or 1665. Two years are listed because in the old days, the 17th century, the shift to the modern calendar hadn't taken place. The new year came in March, so what they called 1664, we call 1665. Even though it is called a, quote, contract, end quote, notice that the wording of the document itself calls it a covenant. Marriage contract, January the 20th, 1664-65. Plymouth, Massachusetts. Plymouth, Massachusetts. This writing witnesses between Thomas Clark, late of Plymouth, Yeoman and Alice Nichols of Boston, widow, that whereas there is an intent of marriage between the said parties, the Lord succeeding their intentions in convenient time, the agreement, therefore, is that the housing and land now in the possession of the said Alice Nichols shall be reserved as a stock for her son, John Nichols, for him to enjoy and possess at the age of twenty and one years. In the meantime, to be improved by the parents towards his education. Also that what estate of hers, the said Alice, shall be found and committed to, the said Mr. Clark, if it should so please the Lord to take the said Alice out of this life before the said Thomas Clark. She shall then have the power to dispose of all these said estate, sometimes hers, so as it seems good to her. Moreover, if it shall please the Lord to take away the said Thomas Clark by death before the said Alice, she surviving, then the said Alice shall have and enjoy her own estate she brought with her, or the value thereof, and £200 added thereto of the estate left by the said Thomas Clark. All which the said Thomas Clark does hereby promise and bind himself to allow of and perform as a covenant upon their marriage. In witness of all which the said Thomas Clark has signed and sealed this present writing to Peter Oliver and William Bartholomew of Boston for the use of and behoof of the said Alice Nichols. Dated this 20th day of January 1664 per me, Thomas Clark. End quote. Marriage covenants like this one used to be standard. Whenever someone got married, the two worked out a covenant. Today, however, it's quite different. Marriage licences drawn up by the state are used. What are they for? Some states have debated their meaning, but generally there is precedent that a marriage licence is a health notification. It is not a statement of permission. There was a time in American history when in certain southern states it did involve permission, when people of two races were involved. I don't think there is anything wrong with this as long as it doesn't become more than a health notification. In a day when AIDS is a growing concern, as a matter of fact, I would think that someone would want to make sure he is not marrying a person with this or some other other awful sexual disease. This would then place the civil marriage licence under the general civil quarantine provisions of Leviticus 13 and 14. The problem is not so much with the marriage licence, 
but with the fact that that's usually all there is. There is no covenant, no sense that marriage is more than a mere contract. The reason is simple. When a marriage covenant is drawn up and filed at the courthouse, it's hard to secure a divorce. Very hard. So, in a day when our nation has turned away from God, we should expect that the whole, quote, covenantal, unquote, force of marriage is ignored. But what is a covenant? The state has ruled that this is what made marriage more than just a contract and, quote, institution, unquote. And if it proves that God owns the family, we should, be be- we should begin by defining a covenant. The Biblical Covenant Quote, Covenant, unquote, is a biblical word found many times all through the scripture. God's word is even divided into an old covenant, often called old, quote, testament, unquote, and new covenant or new, quote, testament, unquote. Hebrews 8, 7 and 13, a, quote, covenant, unquote, is a divinely created bond. The Old Testament's book of Deuteronomy gives us a model. How do we know that it's a covenant? Because it's the second, quote, deutero, unquote, giving of the Ten Commandments, quote, nomi, unquote. Of the first copy, Moses says, quote, So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone, End quote. Deuteronomy 4, 13. Since Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, it's the second, quote, covenant, unquote, with Israel. Also, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses calls the whole book a covenant when he says, quote, So keep all the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. End quote. Deuteronomy 29, 9. A five-part program. Since Deuteronomy is a covenant, it becomes a guide. A quick overview. A quick overview will help us to understand its five parts. One, transcendence. Deuteronomy chapter one, verses one to three. A biblical covenant is established by God, not man. The covenant, therefore always begins by pointing out to God's transcendence. This word means, quote, to rise above, end quote. Biblically, it means that God is distinct. God is the divine author of the covenant. The first part of the Deuteronomic covenant says, quote, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them, end quote. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3. This covenant did not come from man. It was not just a convenient arrangement between two equal parties. It was divinely created. It rose above man. It was more than a mere contract. It was sacred. 2. Hierarchy. Deuteronomy 1, 6-49. The second part of the covenant lays out the relationship between God's authority structure hierarchy, and the progress, history, of his people. Moses begins the section, quote, So I took the heads of your tribes, 
wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. End quote. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 15. These leaders represented the Lord's authority, the word of God. As long as the leaders and Israel obeyed the scripture, there was success. Rebellion, however, led to defeat. 3. Ethics. Deuteronomy 5 to 26. The third section is called, quote, Ethics, end quote, because it summarizes and expands the Ten Commandments. Fulfillment of righteousness, faithfulness, is the heart of the covenant. The largest section of Deuteronomy, it specifies two classes of people. The covenant keeper, who is rewarded with blessing, and the covenant breaker, who receives cursing. 4. Sanctions, Deuteronomy 27-30. Quote, sanctions, end quote, were positive and negative blessing and cursing. This section described how the covenant was actually created by a sacred vow and, quote, oath, end quote. In the Old Testament, this oath was accompanied by a symbol called circumcision, Genesis 17. Here in Deuteronomy, the oath was actually a renewal of circumcision by means of a worship service. This oath, however, was self-maledictory, quote, declaring evil on oneself, end quote. When a person cut a covenant with the Lord, he was pledging himself unto death. In other words, if he ever turned away from his covenant, then it was understood that he would forfeit his life. Only God can make this kind of demand. Thus, the only place where such an oath is valid and binding is in a covenant structure under God. If such an oath is not present explicitly or implicitly, then the structure isn't a covenant. 5. Continuity. Deuteronomy 31-34. Finally, the covenant created a special, quote, bond, unquote, continuity. Anyone who pledged himself through the self-maledictory oath entered into a bond with God and his people. Faithfulness to this bond by doing what was described in chapters 5 to 26, the ethics section, led to inheritance. Those who were covenant keepers were legitimate heirs. Those who were covenant breakers were illegitimate and were disinherited, losing continuity. The biblical covenant is a divinely created bond consisting of these five parts. What does this have to do with the family? Remember, the state declared that the family is a sacred covenant and, quote, institution, end quote. Let's apply the covenant model to the family. The marriage covenant. Scripture calls marriage a covenant. The prophet Malachi says, quote, The Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant, end quote. Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Since marriage is a covenant, the creation of the first family has the same five-fold structure. Quote, and the Lord said, 
It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man he made into woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. End quote. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. 1. Transcendence. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The marriage covenant begins, quote, Then God said, end quote. Notice the similarity between this comment and the beginning of Deuteronomy. God's word establishes the covenant in both cases. God created the family, making it a divine institution. I don't mean divine in the sense that it becomes God, rather it has a divine origin. In the traditional church wedding ceremony, the minister quotes Jesus and says, What God has joined together, let not man separate. Mark chapter 10 verse 9. God forms a marriage union, just as he created the first one. This is the family's greatest defence against an encroaching state. God gave the parents a divine trusteeship. When the state attacks the family, it makes war with a sacred covenant. It steps into a battlefield with God. 2. Hierarchy, Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Biblical hierarchy has to do with authority. What is the authority of the family? It has been given an assignment of subduing the earth to the glory of God. We sometimes call this the, quote, cultural mandate, end quote. Not just the male, but male and female are called to have authority and dominion over the earth. God said, quote, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them, male and female, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. End quote. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. God shows Adam this hierarchy by giving him the job of naming the animals. Adam learns two things. One, he has authority over all the earth. Two, he cannot fulfill the mandate by himself. He needs a partner. God brought the helper Adam needed. To paraphrase one theologian, quote, He did not create Eve from Adam's foot that he might crush her, nor did he make her from his head that she might dominate him. Rather, she was taken from his side that she might rule with him. End quote. But in the creation of woman, God made another hierarchical distinction. Although male and female together were to have dominion, The male was given a special functional headship over the woman. Paul says, 
I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, end quote. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. A functional distinction doesn't imply anything about comparative ethics or comparative worth. All it does is to establish the fact that one person in the relationship has a different set of responsibilities from another. Jesus submitted himself to the Father functionally. He did his Father's business. He didn't subordinate himself in terms of his being or his ethics. He was and is equal to the Father in glory and majesty. He just has a different job in history. So together men and women are to dominate the earth. But the male was appointed an organisational leadership. Like the sign on President Harry Truman's desk, quote, The buck stops here, end quote. So does the husband have to take final responsibility for his family before God. The woman is the husband's top advisor. The husband cannot legitimately pass the buck by blaming his wife. That's just what Adam tried to do in the garden. He said to God, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate, end quote. Genesis chapter 3 verse 12. She, in turn, blamed Satan. She was supposed to be under her husband's authority and over Satan with him. They got it backwards in their sin. Satan wound up the victor. The buck, nevertheless, stopped with each of them. In God's own time. But he demonstrated which place each of them was supposed to have when he cross-examined each of them in turn. Adam, Eve and Satan. 3. Ethics. Genesis chapter 2 verse 23. Ethics is the law system of the covenant. In this verse, however, Adam names the female. What does naming have to do with God's law? God commanded dominion over the animals and then bought some to Adam to name. This classification of them was the dominion mandate, the law given to Adam. So when Adam names the woman, he carries out God's law. God's law governs the first family. Freedom is the God-given liberty to obey, the liberty to avoid disobeying God. The family's greatest argument before an antagonistic civil government is that it asserts its God-given authority to obey God's law. When the civil government will not let parents raise their children according to God's law, then it is making itself out to be God. This is the argument God blesses. This was the purpose for our forefathers coming to this continent. They believed that the ethics of the family covenant is the word of God. 4. Sanctions. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. The biblical covenant is created by an oath, the ceremonial reception of sanctions. So is marriage. As the traditional marriage vows indicate, the marriage oath is self-maledictory. Quote, Till death do us part, unquote. This is a death pledge. It is binding until the death of a partner. Also, however, the pledge implies death to the one who does not persevere in the marriage until the death of the partner. How is a marital vow implied in, quote, leave, cleave, one flesh, end quote? Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 speaks of a legal process of separation from the parents and the formation of a new household. Before someone could, quote, leave his father and mother, end quote, he would have to work out the details on inheritance. 
He couldn't just walk away from his parents. Illegal transition from the old house was needed, requiring an official ceremony. Here is where the oath comes into play. Before the parents would release their children, a legal pledge would have to be made. Perhaps some symbolic gesture would also have been made. In our day, the wedding ring is a token of the vow. In Christian cultures, we don't put rings in people's noses the way we do with pigs or cows, but the meaning is the same. Each has legal powers over the other's behaviour. Thus, Moses' description points to sanctions received through some legal and official act of oath-taking. 5. Continuity Genesis 2.25 Continuity means extension through time. Discontinuity means a cutting off in the midst of time, a disruption. Moses says that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. This expresses a break in their previous continuity. How? Moses wants us to see that pre-fall man and woman lived in a perfect moral union. Their nakedness was not a source of shame. After their fall into sin, however, their nakedness became a source of guilt. Each recognised in himself the looming prospect of death when God's judgement came. This meant the coming dissolution of their marriage. Divorce by death. Each faced a partner who in principle was no longer a legal marriage partner. They had become legal strangers. Covenant keeping leads to continuity and covenant breaking leads to discontinuity. Family continuity is created to be based on faithfulness to God's covenant. The following chapters of Genesis serve as a good example. After the fall of Adam and Eve, we read about the story of Cain and Abel, the first two sons of this marriage, Genesis 4. Cain killed Abel. Because of this, he was cut out of the family and driven away, Genesis chapter 4 verse 14. So, if a member of the family rebels against God's word, he should be cut out of the inheritance. But if he's faithful, he should receive an inheritance. Have you ever thought about how the civil government has interfered with the biblical laws of inheritance? For one, since the early years of this century, income tax has seriously cut into everyone's ability to pass down a hefty financial legacy to his heirs. This was one of the severest blows dealt to the family. Nevertheless, at this point, it is worth observing that biblical continuity is according to the covenant, not, quote, bloodlines, end quote. If you think about it, all families are initially established by covenant oath. The legal is the basis of the physical. So, family ties should be based on God's covenant. Family covenant keepers are supposed to receive the inheritance. Covenant breakers are not supposed to get anything. Thus, the family is a sacred covenant, more than a contract. The powerful effect is that God is the author, not the state, not the church, not even the family. Rather, God's family is trustee of a five-part sacred covenant. Summary What have I covered in this chapter? I have tried to answer the question, who owns the family? The correct answer is God. 1. I began by pointing out that the Supreme Court has already recognised this institutional status of the family by essentially declaring it a covenant. A covenant created by God and patterned after his covenant with man. 
2. Next, I showed that Deuteronomy breaks the covenant into five parts. 1. Transcendence, rising above man. 2. Hierarchy, God's authoritative chain of command. 3. Ethics, God laws of faithfulness. 4. Sanctions, special, self-maledictory oath. 5. Continuity, bond based on God's covenant. 3. Then I developed the parallel between God's covenant with man and the marital covenant. The Bible actually calls marriage a covenant, and the fivefold division carries through. 1. Transcendence, marriage created by God. 2. Hierarchy, man is head over the woman. 3. Ethics, family is governed by God's commands. 4. Sanctions, marital covenant created by oath. 5. Continuity, bond based on covenant. One other concluding point should be made. The structure of the principles of this book basically follow the covenantal pattern. Also, since Deuteronomy is the second giving of God's Ten Commandment Covenant, the commandments themselves track this covenantal pattern twice. The first five commandments are Godward and the second five are manward. So, I will develop the principle two times, once in a general Godward direction and second with a manward emphasis. In this chapter, I have concentrated on the fact that marriage is a, quote, divinely created bond, unquote, not just an invention of man. Although the entire covenant model has been presented, it has served the basic purpose of proving that marriage is a sacred covenant. Also, the first point in the fivefold structure, transcendence. So, God owns the family. But now we want to move on to the second principle. The next question we want to answer is, by whose authority? Whose authority controls the family? By whose authority can parents educate children? Is it the state's? Is it the family's? Whose is it? Let us turn to the next chapter and answer these questions.